Welcome to Breaking Form, a podcast of poetry and culture. I'm Aaron Smith. And I am James Allen Hall. For those listening for the first time, we do this show in segments. We do literary games. We revisit books that we love. We gossip. We do. We interview. We shade. We laugh. And we are not for everyone. Hey everyone, we know this isn't our usual breaking form day, but we wanted to come on in honor of World AIDS Day and read some work by poets and writers that we've lost to AIDS. And we're just going to read the poems. Uh, We're not going to talk in between them and there won't be a fact check. We'll just put some links in the show notes for you. Paul Monette, here. Everything extraneous has burned away. This is how burning feels in the fall of the final year, not like leaves in a blue October, but as if the skin were a paper lantern full of trapped moths beating their fired wings. And yet I can lie on this hill just above you, a foot beside where I will lie myself soon, soon. And for all the rack and blubber, Feel still how we were warriors when the nearest morning sun in the garden was a kingdom after room 1010. War is not all death, it turns out. War is what little thing you hold on to, refugeed and far from home. Oh, sweetie, will you please forgive me this, that every time I opened a box of anything, glad bags, one-a-days. King size was the worst. I'd think, will you still be here when the box is empty? Raj, Raj, who will play boy with me now that I bucket with tears through it all? When I'd cling beside you sobbing, you'd shrug it off with the quietest, I'm still here. I have your watch in the top drawer which I don't dare wear yet. Help me, please. The boxes, grocery, home, day after day, the junk that keeps men spotless. But it doesn't matter now how long they last or I. The day has taken you with it, and all there is now is burning dark. The only green is up by the grave, And this little thing of telling the hill, I'm here. Oh, I'm here. Essex Hemphill, American Wedding. In America, I place my ring on your cock where it belongs. No horseman bearing terror, no soldiers of doom will swoop in and sweep us apart. They're too busy looting the land to watch us. They don't know we need each other critically. They expect us to call in sick, watch television all night, die by our own hands. They don't know we are becoming powerful. Every time we kiss, we confirm the new world coming. What the rose whispers before blooming, I vow to you. I give you my heart, a safe house, 
I give you promises other than milk, honey, liberty. I assume you will always be a free man with a dream. In America, place your ring on my cock where it belongs. Long may we live to free this dream. Bookie Mueller, The Mystery of Tap Water. Julie lost her mind one day, just like that. Well, really, it had taken two weeks to lose it completely. She had always been eccentric, but now she was past that. She believed very strongly in the principle, you are what you eat. So she experimented with water. She drank it. No food, no juice, just water for two weeks. She was convinced that since she would be only water, she could disappear at will. I saw her the night before she disappeared, and she was pretty lucid. She told me that she had lived forever, that she would never die, and since she was all water, she must have been the iceberg that sank the Titanic, the heavy water used in making the hydrogen bomb, the basic element used with Kool-Aid in Jonestown, Guyana. I feel very guilty, she said. Her last words before she left were, When you see a gushing fountain, I'll be there. When you sip a glass of ice water, I'll be there. When there's a torrential downpour, a cloud burst, a flood, a blizzard, a lawn sprinkler, that's me. Okay, I smiled, I'll look for you. No one ever saw her again. Oh, she's so elusive, everyone said. She'll turn up sooner or later in some mental hospital. But she never did. I know it's absurd and ridiculous, but now, whenever I take a bath, I see Julie pouring out of the faucet, and I begin to wonder just how many other odd people and complete strangers are in the bathtub floating around with me. Cookie Mueller from A Last Letter. In 1982, my best friend died of AIDS. Since then, there have been so many more friends I've lost. We all have. Through all of this, I've come to realize that the most painful tragedy concerning AIDS death has to do with something much larger than the loss of human life itself. There is a deepening horror, more grand than the world is yet aware. To see it, we have to watch closely who is being stolen from us. Perhaps there is no hope left for the whole of humankind, not because of the nature of the epidemic, but the nature of those it strikes. Each friend I've lost was an extraordinary person, not just to me, but to hundreds of people who knew their work and their fight. These were the kind of people who lifted the quality of all our lives. Their war was against ignorance, the bankruptcy of beauty, and the truancy of culture. They were people who hated and scorned pettiness, intolerance, bigotry, mediocrity, ugliness, and spiritual myopia. The blindness that makes life hollow and insipid was unacceptable. They tried to make us see. Iris de la Cruz, Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll, and AIDS. All of a sudden, I discovered other women with the virus. There were black women, white women, Latinas, rich women, and poor women. There were addicts and transfusion women. They were mothers and sisters and lovers and daughters 
and grandmothers. Some were militant lesbians and others were Republicans. Imagine that. Even Republicans get AIDS. And we were all connected by the virus. Outside differences became trivial. Feelings and survival were everyone's main concern. And I learned that there was still a lot of love left in me. The rage mellowed. I was diagnosed with AIDS two years ago. I kept attending the women's group until the leader left. Then I took over the facilitator's role, along with my best friend, Helen, who has ARC. A few months ago, I started a group for bi and heterosexuals dealing with HIV. I do AIDS outreach and education. I teach safer sex and show addicts how to clean their works. I encourage them to seek treatment. The rage that burned is now a hot anger. I've been to too many funerals with this disease. I'm tired of the newly diagnosed being made to feel dirty. I'm tired of my people being neglected and left dying on the streets. My child is now 19 and we're very close. The legacy I want to leave her is for her to remember her mama was a survivor. She survived drugs and she survived her own worst enemy, which was herself. And she taught others survival. She may or may not have survived AIDS, but she kicked ass while she was here. David Vonarovich from Close to the Knives. I surprised myself. I barely cried. When everyone left the room, I closed the door and pulled the Super 8 camera out of my bag and did a sweep of his bed, his open eye, his open mouth, that beautiful hand with the hint of gauze at the wrist that held the IV needle, the color of his hand like marble, the full sense of the flesh of it, then the still camera, portraits of his amazing feet, his head, that open eye again. I kept trying to get the light I saw in that eye and then the door flew open and a nun rushed in babbling about how he'd accepted the church. And I look at this guy on the bed with his outstretched arm and I think, but he's beyond that. He's more there than the words coming from her containing these images of spirituality. I mean, just the essence of death, the whole taboo structure in this culture, the mystery of it, the fears and joys of it, the flight it contains, this body of my friend on the bed, this body of my brother, my father, my emotional link to the world, this body, I don't know, this pure and cutting air, just all the thoughts and sensations, this death, this event produces and bystanders contains more spirituality than any words we can manufacture. So I asked her to leave. And after closing the door again, I tried to say something to him staring into that enormous eye. If in death the body's energy disperses and merges with everything around us, can it immediately know my thoughts? But I try and speak anyway and try and say something in case he's afraid or confused by his own death and maybe needs some reassurance or a tool to pick up, but nothing comes from my mouth. This is the most important event of my life and my mouth can't form words and maybe I'm the one who needs words. 
Maybe I'm the one who needs reassurance and all I can do is raise my hands from my sides in helplessness and say, all I want is some sort of grace. And then the water comes from my eyes. Melvin Dixon from I'll Be Somewhere Listening for My Name. I was reminded of how vulnerable we are as gay men, as black gay men, to the disposal or erasure of our lives. Against this double cremation, we must leave the legacy of our writing and our perspectives on gay and straight experiences. Our voice is our weapon. First, reaffirm the importance of cultural diversity in our community. Second, preserve our literary heritage by posthumous publications and reprints. And third, establish grants and fellowships to ensure that our literary history is written and passed on to others. I don't think these comments are bleak, but they should remind us of one thing. We alone are responsible for the preservation and future of our literature. If we don't buy our books, they won't get published. If we don't talk about our books, they won't get reviewed. If we don't write our books, they won't get written. As for me, I may not be well enough or alive next year to attend the Lesbian and Gay Writers Conference, but I'll be somewhere listening for my name. I may not be around to celebrate with you the publication of gay literary history, but I'll be somewhere listening for my name. If I don't make it to tea dance in Provincetown or the Pines, I'll be somewhere listening for my name. You then are charged by the possibility of your good health, by the broadness of your vision to remember us. Tim Dugos, note to Michael, strange to see the river through the window that lets the colors in behind me. It's real light as opposed to artificial. It's real life I'm in the middle of, I hope. Where you are is just as real, I also hope. And what we feel between us is a filament that bears its own energy glowing in ways too subtle or too fast for the eye to pick up a precious alloy that puts us in the same place on one level, the level of the river and the light. <laughs> <laughs>